This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to follow. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that often starts with the carnivore cures all meat elimination diet. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of sitting down with Professor Tim Noakes. If you've been following a low carb diet or been an advocate in this space, I'm sure you've felt some semblance of pushback. And Professor Noakes was one of the first people to boldly go out and stand against big food, big pharma. While this conversation is a lot about why a low carb, high fat diet is beneficial, the undertone is really that maybe what we are being told in nutrition and hydration is not optimal for our health. And maybe it was intentional, not just that we didn't have the science a few decades ago, but actually maybe it was purposeful. It's a very sobering conversation and I hope you get so much out of it. Professor Noakes is a South African scientist and an emeritus professor in the Division of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine at the University of Cape Town. He has run more than 70 marathons and ultra marathons and is the author of several books on exercise and diet. Professor Noakes has published more than 750 scientific books and articles and has been cited more than 16,000 times in scientific literature. And while Professor Noakes started in medical school and finished his medical degree, he chose to stay in the research because he just absolutely loves research. Professor Noakes also shares a lot of his own diabetic journey and how he found out that he was insulin resistant before it showed in his physical body. We talk about overhydration in athletes. We talk about if carbs are truly necessary, even if you train hard. And we talk about why low carb, high fat is ideal for most people. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Professor Noakes. Thank you so much for joining me today. For the people that are listening and watching that may not have heard of you, if you can introduce yourself and share your story. Sure, Judy. It's a long story, but I'll (laughs) cut it short. So basically, um, studied as a medical doctor, but in my training, I realized that I wasn't really into medical practice as much I was into science, and particularly the science of health. And it's really interesting that I, I could not learn pharmacology. It was impossible for me to remember these names. And I managed to graduate from medicine without actually knowing how to treat too many conditions. I was good at diagnosis, but management wasn't my my strength. Now, while I was in medical school, I started playing sport and particularly endurance sports. And then I fell in love with physiology of exercise and and sports medicine. So my whole training, I was thinking 
here's the lecturer. How does that apply to sport? And I was very fortunate because I started in 1969 and sports science was a very, very minor discipline in those days. It was possible to know everything in the field. And now, of course, it's become highly specialized. So I grew up with this this new discipline, sports science and sports medicine. So immediately I graduated with my medical degree. I did my internship and then I said, no, I'm going to research. And I went straight into research. And from there, I went into teaching. And initially, my focus was on heart metabolism. That was what I did my MD in. And then I moved on to particularly running and the physiology of running. That captured my imagination because by then I was running ultra marathons and marathons. All our original research was on long distance running. And I was particularly interested in metabolism. So we studied carbohydrates and exercise, and I became well known for promoting the idea you must eat lots of carbohydrates during exercise. And then I wrote this book, Law of Running, the last issue of which was in 2002. And if you open the book, it tells you, you must do everything you must do is eat carbs, eat more carbs. And when you've eaten more carbs, you eat more carbs. (laughs) And so... (laughs) And so unfortunately, in fortunately, in 2010, I, I, I read the the great book by At, on Atkins, the new Atkins for the new you by three scientists who I'd studied, I knew these are really good scientists. And they said, Atkins was right, and you need to eat a high saturated fat diet. And I said, this is a disgrace, they've sold out. So I got in my car and I drove to the, the nearest bookshop, and they had one copy of the book. So I bought it on December the 12th, 2010, and the date is important. (laughs) And I read it, and two and a half hours later, I said, oh, my gosh, for 33 years, I got it all wrong. Everything I said about nutrition in this book, not everything, but a lot of it's wrong. And famously, I've been seen tearing the pages out of this book saying that was wrong. So anyway, I then changed my dietary advice, and that caused me all sorts of trouble because my university decided that I'd lost it, and they had to distance themselves from me, and they publicly humiliated me. And as a consequence, my profession then went against me and charged me with misinformation and spreading the wrong information. And I went to court for four years. And this is the result of of the four years in court. And I'm glad to say we won on all counts. And we showed that the low-carbohydrate diet has got plenty of evidence behind it. So as a result of all this, we started the foundation called the Noakes Foundation and Nutrition Network. And that promotes the idea that the low-carb diet is very effective. And in fact, in a month's time or two months' time, we're producing the first encyclopedia on the low-carb diet which is very exciting, with Elsevier. Elsevier, the publishers, and we had 62 of the world-leading authorities contributing, and that's coming out. And that's going to change everything because you can no longer say there's no evidence for low-carb benefits or that it's a pseudoscience. It turns out there's more evidence for this diet than any other single diet. Wow. And that's, that's what's really exciting. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about how you even got on trial and how that all happened? I think it started with a tweet, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. <laughs> so, and, you know, it's so funny because an hour ago, I, I was banned from Twitter twice, but I've been banned for five months until an hour ago. And I oh, finally okay. logged back again on Twitter. So so anyway, uh, 
I was being stalked by the dietitians in South Africa. They wanted to catch me on something. And it was really interesting because I gave a long lecture in Johannesburg, the main city in South Africa, and there were six dietitians there, and they all had the tape recorders. Of course, I didn't know this. And they went through everything I said. And then at the end, I suddenly got a question which I'd never had before. And it was something to do with breastfeeding. And, And I mean, that's not my area. So I can't imagine why it came. Anyway, about a week later, someone tweets and essentially asked if breast milk could cause wind for her baby. And she asked what she, excuse me, what she should be doing to get rid of the the wind. And again, I'm not into that. So I said, well, he's just getting fantastic, healthy, very healthy breast milk. And the key is to wean onto a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. If I'd said real food, they couldn't have sued me. Instead, I said LCHF because I had run out of characters. Sure. Within nine nine hours, I was reported to the medical and dental council that control medical practitioners. And originally, I laughed. They sent me a letter, and I thought, well, this is rubbish. I mean, I don't have to defend myself against this because what I said is the dietary guidelines for children for weaning in South Africa. It's the dietary guidelines. That's all I said. And anyway, it soon escalated. And then I realized I was in trouble. So I got decent lawyers involved. And we went to court for four years. And and I was offered the opportunity, you know, just say you're guilty, and we'll forget about it. I said, No, I'm not guilty. I'm not going to give in to big food, because it was big food from the US and elsewhere who were driving it. Because I'd run in, I'd run foul of big food, particularly Pepsi Cola, with another book I wrote called Waterlogged. And and waterlogged describes the problem, as it says, of overhydration. Mm. And what happened was my first interest was in fluid replacement in exercise and fu- fuel replacement, which is mainly carbohydrates in those days. And I was the first person in the world that someone wrote to me and, and said, listen, I ran this long race in South Africa, 56 miles, and I nearly died. And this is what happened. I was hospitalized for and for four days I was unconscious. Wow. And what had happened, my blood sodium level had dropped so low that I was, my brain had swollen, et cetera. And she said, what went wrong? And I said, I have no idea because it's never been described in a runner, in an athlete. It's well described in clinical patients, but not in a runner. It took us 10 years to definitively prove what the cause was. So in 1991, we proved it was she had drunk too much. And she drunk too much because that was the advice in those days. You must drink as much as tolerable. And so eventually we we realized that this approach, which was now becoming popular, that you must drink as much as tolerable during exercise, was going to kill people. And I predicted that the first person who will die will be a female runner in the United States of America in a, in a marathon. And that exactly happened in 1993 in a marathon in California. A lady died after the race uh, from this condition. And only when that happened in the Boston Marathon, to another lady, did it finally break the story? And then they acknowledged that I was being correct all along and that they were causing the problem. So those people, the food industry and the the, the, the cola drink industry had it in for me anyway. So when they had the opportunity to to nail me in, in a trial, they, they went for it. And so this book describes everything that happened. So my legal team, and they were utterly brilliant. I had, they were just out of this world compared to the competition, the prosecution. 
And they just said, Tim, you're just going to stand at the court, in the court and you're just going to give all the evidence you want. And it went on for nine and a half days. I was giving evidence and the cross-examination under oath. And then we had a couple of um, unbelievable expert witnesses, Nina Teichold, who wrote the book Big Fat Surprise, jo- Zoe Harcom, who's one of the best statisticians I know, and Karen Zinn from New Zealand, who who I trained, and Karen Zinn from New Zealand, whom I'd been responsible for training. She'd gone to New Zealand promoting the high-carb diet, and then one day her professor came up to her and he said, you know, here's an article, and it says maybe we shouldn't be promoting the high-carb diet so much. What do you think? So she said, oh, that's terrible. I'm just going to be wrong. But anyway, she went away for a month and she came back and she said, actually, that's right. The low-carb diet is the the right one. And so she's progressed by leaps and bounds in her career. And so what happened afterwards? So after the four-year trial, they just dismissed it and did they apologize? I mean, what happened after that? Nothing. <laughs> okay. The dietary guidelines have not changed in South Africa. They are still what they were. My university never apologized to me uh, for for what they did. They said I was unscientific. I was promoting claims of cures which were extravagant and irresponsible. And all I said was that type 2 diabetes is a reversible condition. And I had the evidence because I knew. I mean, I knew the literature and I'd seen the cases. and And I now know that the first case of cured diabetes goes back to 1940. Larry Newberg. He publishes a paper in the, I think it was the Journal of American Medical Association. So Larry Newberg publishes a paper in about 1940 showing reversal of type 2 diabetes in about 30 patients. And he has the data. There it is. It's very clear. And so if you know the field, you know that there are these these papers. But if you're not an expert, you wouldn't know that. And that was the problem. We were dealing with people who thought they knew what they were talking about and they hadn't the first clue. Again, I emphasize that the dietary guidelines for weaning children say you must feed them meat, dairy, chicken, eggs, daily or as much as po- or as often as possible. So that's all I said. <laughs> and the irony was, the real irony was that the chief prosecution witness wrote the guidelines and she oh didn't gosh. even know what they were. But of course, she did know what they were. But she was funded by industry to to teach South Africa something different. I know you have your own blood sugar imbalance story, even as an athlete. Um, can you share a little bit about that? And is that part of the reason why you realize low carb is more important, or was it specifically that book? That that's a really good good question. So so my father dies of type two diabetes. He gets the standard treatment, and because of him, I could go to university. I was the first person in our family who'd gone to university. And managed and graduated as a medical doctor. So I owed an enormous amount. I loved him and we were, he was just a fantastic man. And to watch him decay over a period of 10 years as the diabetes got worse. And then ultimately the last four years were too appalling. And I could do nothing about it. And ultimately you feel a little bit of guilt. You didn't know how to help him. So anyway, Exactly at this time, we're doing research on ourselves and we're doing low carb. Ironically, we did low carb studies in 1978 and I was participant and we did, we had to exercise for two hours and then not eat for, for 12 hours. And we measured blood ketone levels and we showed that blood ketone levels increased with low carb diets, which, you know, it's obvious, but it wasn't obvious in 1978. And so this paper was quite well 
well received. But we measured myself when I ate a high carbohydrate diet, when I had a low carbohydrate diet, and when I on the control days. And my insulin was five times normal. My fasting insulin was oh, five wow. times normal on a high carbohydrate diet. It came down to about three times normal on the low carb diet. But it was it was grossly elevated. And, and of course, we didn't know what that meant in those days. Oh, you've got insulin because you're eating a high carb diet. You must have a high insulin. And only many years later, when I went back and looked at the original data, did I see that I was profoundly insulin resistant. Now, when I was 28 years old, I was running at least 120 kilometers a week, which is about 70 miles or 80 miles a week, at least. I was racing regularly. My body mass index was 21 at maximum. And I had very little body fat. And I was profoundly insulin resistant. So anyone who tells you that insulin resistance is because of fat alone, no, I got the genetic, I got the bad genes all along. And here now I'm promoting this high carbohydrate diet and I'm eating this rubbish these cereals and grains. And I, I'm, one of my great friends, he reminds me, he said, you know, I invited you to my house because I traveled a couple of hundred miles away and I offered you eggs and bacon for breakfast and you refused to eat it. <laughs> you, you said, I have to have cereals. You can't eat that food. It'll kill you. So he's always laughed at that because now he converted also to the more carnivore diet like myself. So anyway, um, I get progressively fatter. And my running gets worse and worse and worse. And that was the first thing I noticed that very early on, when I'm still running this 120, 140, 160 Ks a, a week, I notice it's getting more difficult and my running is getting worse. And the only time I feel good is when I'm running the most possible and, and often running up to 200 kilometers a week. And what's happening? I'm burning off all the carbs. So now I'm okay. And I felt best when I went out and run long, very long runs of 30, 30 miles or 40 miles. Then I'd get ketotic. And of course, I'd get rid of all the glucose. The glucose would normalize. And I'm on ketones and I'd be fantastic. And all this time, I'm pre-diabetic without realizing it. So eventually, when I changed my diet, and then I said, well, actually, you better just check if you've got diabetes. And I found my fasting glucose was 6.8. And I thought that the diet alone would correct that. But the, I only checked that after I'd been on the diet for a couple of months. So I probably was 7.5 or something. So I dropped to 6.8. And then it wouldn't shift. Then I went on to metformin. And I brought it down to I'm averaging about 5.3 to 5.5 now. That's, that's kind of where it, it sits. I can't get it any lower because obviously I've got some some chronic damage that in insulin, whatever, right. doesn't quite work properly. But I mean, I'm, I, I should basically be dead now because my dad died 10 years after the diagnosis. And I'm 10, 12, 14 years into the diagnosis and I'm still doing reasonably well. So that was that was the the way I got around it, uh, which was the low carb diet. It was a progressive weight loss and probably losing liver fat and pancreatic fat things got got slightly better and eventually my glucose could would come down but i'm on a zero to 25 gram carb diet maximum and if i shift from that my glucose just shoots through the roof <laughs> I, I don't do it but i can see it hey guys just to let you know my carnivore cure book is back in stock for nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. 
We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. There are people in the animal-based space, uh, carnivore space, that say if you are an athlete, um, I guess similar to story to yours, but if you are an athlete or you work out a lot, carbs are needed, carbs are ideal, or or that you can tolerate some amount of carbs. In your case, you looked like a picture of health and even with your lifestyle, but you were still on your way to diabetes and insulin resistance. How do we challenge that belief of if you're thin, if you look healthy, if you have a six pack um, abs that you're there for, you can tolerate 200, 300 grams of carbs, even if it's just fruit and honey. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to say that we've just published evidence that that's not true. Okay. That, that's the, that statement's incorrect. The paper is Philip Prince, and I'm the second author, and it's in Frontiers, one of the Frontiers journals. But if you type in Prince and Noakes and low-carb diet, and what we did was, this is a series of experiments we started about five years ago. So it, it, it in time evolves. And the beauty of this study was that it was complete serendipity. Everything we found that was critical was serendipity. We didn't expect it. But we're the first person, first people to challenge what's been taught for 100 years. And people have been too scared to challenge it, which is astonishing because science is meant to be challenged. So anyway, we we... First, we had people run five-kilometer time trials, high-fat, high-carb diet, found no difference, none at all. So that was surprising because we thought, you know, you can't run 5Ks flat out if you're on a high-fat diet. So we found no difference. And we found that once you adapt to the high-fat diet, you burn a lot of fat during exercise. So that we knew. So then Philip said to me, Prof, what should we do next? I said, well, we've got to cut the distance because what they'll say is that oh, you've got glycogen in your muscles anyway, so that you can run 5K is fine, not a problem. So I said, we've got to go to one mile. And that's quite high, that's high intensity exercise and see what happens. So we tested these guys, high carb diet, high fat diet, no difference in the one mile performance, absolutely none. So I said, no, but we still got a problem because they're still going to say it's because they had lots of glycogen when they started exercise. So I said, what do you have to do? We have to exercise them to the point where we know they're glycogen depleted in their muscles. To do that, we need to do six times 800 meter sprints. So they can do intervals. And we did that. And what I didn't tell him to do was to measure metabolism during that, during the interval session. That makes it a bit more difficult because you have to have a, a, a mask in, in, on your face and you breathe out and you breathe in, et cetera. And we calculate what you, where your energy is coming from. Okay, right. So... These guys were tough and the, the scientists were tough and the, the experimental subjects were very tough and they did it. They completed the experiment. And what we noticed that what we expected, the first interval is fine. The second interval is fine. The third interval is getting a bit tough. The fourth interval, definitely performance worse. Fifth interval, they can barely walk. And the sixth interval, they say, I can't do this. That's what we expected. That's what okay. the prediction is. What did we find? Just got better. They <laughs> just nothing changed. They were fine. So the performance was identical, but we measured their metabolism, which was the key. Now, the textbook says once you go above 85% of your maximum, you burn naught grams of fat, zero, zero, zero. That is what the textbook says. Every single major textbook will say that. We found the highest rates of fat oxidation ever recorded in history in humans at 86%. So we wow. 
by chance, they excise 86%, which is above 85%, and they burnt <laughs> more fat than has ever been described. So that was, that was the one serendipity. So now we know that humans can burn fat and run fast, and, and it doesn't make any difference. So I've, I've been working on a series of articles. We're all working on a series of articles showing that glycogen, is there's nothing special about glycogen. You don't need it to, to do vigorous exercise which incidentally, neither do mice. <laughs> so they bred mice without glycogen, and the mice can exercise all they like. So mice and men, what they said, of course, is, oh, well, these mice are definitely, men are not like mice. Men need <laughs> glycogen. Well, now we know it's not. Mice and men are the same. But now here's the serendipity. We had a chance to monitor these people with a continuous glucose monitoring. Mm-hmm. during the. They were on this diet for four weeks, so it's a lovely time. Because you've got monitoring their minimum hourly glucose for this period of time. And guess what we found? Without changing anything but the carbohydrate content of the diet, they didn't stop training. They continued to train exactly the same. They didn't change their weight. Their weight stayed absolutely stable. And I said they didn't change their training. Right. And what happened? 30% became pre-diabetic on the high-carb diet. 30% showed pre-diabetes. And when they went on the high-fat diet, normalized completely. They were absolutely perfect. Their glucose control was impeccable on the high-fat diet. But on the traditional athletic diet, 30% were pre-diabetic. And when you look at the literature, that's about right. You find that 30% 30% of people eating the high-carb diet, training hard. These people were training 80 to 90 kilometers a week. They were healthy. They were competitive athletes, yet they developed prediabetes. So that was me, pre-diabetic. Mm-hmm. And you do that for 30 years and you become diabetic. So the evidence is in the literature now that you, just because you're running, doesn't mean a thing. You, It depends on your level of insulin resistance and how much carbohydrate you can cope with and I've, I've learned that that's the key the key is you each of us individually has to learn how much carbohydrate can i cope with i can cope with 25 grams but not 26 grams <laughs> you know that and people don't understand that they don't understand that the margin for error is it's trivial wow. if i was eating 100 grams of carbs a day for the last 10 years i wouldn't be here with you i'm absolutely convinced about that and we're not talking 200 or 300 grams. We're right. talking 100 grams a day, you know, because that's I'm extremely insulin resistant. So that so that's the key. People have to understand what is the maximum amount of carbohydrate I can eat, and I'm not allowed to eat any more than that. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a carb tolerance for individuals, and figuring that out makes a lot of sense. What what is it about the diet? I mean, why why have we been taught for so long to eat mostly carbs, mostly plant-based in a sense when we eat whole grains and then vegetables and fruits, it's mostly plant-based. What is so wrong with that? I know we've touched a little bit on glucose and insulin, but maybe if you could just give us a little bit of the lay of the land. I think it starts 3 million years ago, 4 million years ago. And I I know people don't like talking about evolution. So if you don't like the evolution, then this is how humans were created. So either either model I'm absolutely comfortable with. Okay. And the reality is humans were created to eat high fat, high protein. And we did that till about 18,000 years ago. And that's when the agricultural revolution came in. And the reason we had the agricultural revolution was largely because humans had hunted out the fat animals. 
And the reason you need fat animals is we needed 65% of our calories needed to come from fat because we could only cope with humans seems to evolve to only be able to cope with about 35 gram, 35% of protein. And then the, the rest comes with from fat. And so the animals you hunt have to provide 65% of fat. And the only animals that do are elephants and mammoths and rhinoceroses and hippopotamuses. And there's data showing humans killing elephants and rhinoceroses and hippopotamuses 3 million years ago. 3 million years ago. And we were not big and tall and clever like we are today. So that's how we evolve. And our whole biology is built on digesting fat and protein, not sugar. Now that changed, and it started changing 18,000 years ago, as, as I've said, and then it accelerated since 1977 when the processed food industry has just taken off. And so now, instead of getting 65% fat and 35% protein, you're getting 60 70% carbohydrate. And the body it literally doesn't know what to do with it. One of the key points about metabolism is that your body is designed to do one thing very well, and that's keep your blood glucose normal. It, it, it resists everything, either to drop, because then your brain goes get sick, or it goes up and you damage your arteries. So the body's designed, the instant the glucose starts to rise in the bloodstream, it calls in all these powerful hormones like insulin to get the glucose out of the bloodstream. And so you turn off your fat metabolism and you burn off the glucose or you store it in the liver and in the muscles. That's the focus, the whole focus of metabolism. That's what it's focused on initially. Everything else is secondary. But as soon as the glucose rises, the system goes into overdrive to get the glucose down. Now, what's happening and why? Because we just didn't ever experience this, these spikes of glucose until, as I've said, 18,000 years ago. Now, if you repeat these spikes of glucose and insulin every three to four hours, you get all the problems that we talk about, the insulin resistance, the obesity, and everything else that, that comes with that. And it's it's purely that problem. And if you don't eat the carbs, you don't get these spikes, and then you're fine. So that's, that's, it's uh, <laughs> human biology and nutrition is really simple. It's right. don't get those spikes and don't get the instant glucose spikes. That's what you must try to avoid. Even in your studies, you showed that there's 30% that would have more of the pre-diabetic, I guess, complications. Is there just a subset of people that can tolerate more carbs? Um, is that it. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, but I mean, we now know that 80% of North Americans have metabolic syndrome by the age of 50 or 60. So that is the standard, the standard, uh, the, the standard build of the human is to be insulin resistant and to develop insulin resistant progressively. And the, let's say there are 20%. I don't think it. Uh, when I look around, I don't see 20% of people looking healthy anymore. And you judge by their waist circumference. And if the waist circumference is too big and they've got this protruding belly, they're sick. That's the metabolic syndrome. And so that's what you look for. And, and when you see it, the protruding belly, that person is ill and is going to develop the complications. And I don't think it's 20% who don't have it. I think it's more than, for, sorry, it's fewer than that. So, so to answer your question, yes, there are some people who can live on a high carbohydrate diet, but they they few and far between. There are 
people nowadays in the nutrition space that say it is not the sugar that's the issue. Um, I don't know if you've been hearing this, but that it's all the polyunsaturated fatty acids or a lot of the seed oils that are rich in the polyunsaturated fatty acids. And that's what's causing metabolic syndrome. And, and then that's why. So it's we're incorrectly blaming the sugar. Just within the last few years, there's been a few people that were really, really for that way of thinking. And now they are pre-diabetic from all the excess sugar they've been consuming, even though they've been reducing their PUFA load. Any thoughts on that progressive movement? Well, I think uh, there's absolutely no question they're going to find polyunsaturated fatty acids are not healthy, and they right. probably contributed hugely to disease. I don't contest that. Uh, the sugar came first, though, I think, and that's that's where why people perhaps are now accepting sugar as the cause. But I quite agree with you. They they both together are highly toxic, and they what's changed in the diet has the sugars gone up, and so has the polyunsaturated fatty acids. And so I, I I'm quite comfortable for people to say actually it's not the sugar, it's the polyunsaturated fatties. But I don't think that's true. I think the sugar has a huge role to play as well. Yeah, but, and, but, I, but we mustn't we mustn't diminish the role of perfect polyunsaturated fatty acids. You mustn't diminish them. Yes, um, I, I, I fully agree. I, I think no one is supposed to be eating vegetable oils that are from toxic plants or made from um, seeds and stuff that we were not intended. I mean, we use cotton for clothing and other materials and we use that oil then for cooking. It just makes no logical sense. So I completely agree. I just, um, I, I do see, especially in my practice, I see so many people suffering from it's, it's not the oils that they're eating as much. And I'm sure it, the vegetable oils add to it, but usually what the vegetable oils is a lot of carbohydrates as well. So it's always the packaged processed foods have a combination of both, but I don't think it's just if you removed all the seed oils that then you would be healthy if you ate a ton of sugar. It just doesn't make logical and biological sense, as you said. No, quite agree with you, yeah. You know, if someone has diabetes, it just seems so logical to say, okay, your blood sugar is high. Let's lower your sugar levels. Why is that just not standard care? Even with the pandemic, why was nutrition not the first thing of let's try to change the way you eat and your lifestyle to improve your outcomes, whether it's metabolic syndrome or just anything else going on? So let's recall that I was chased out of my university (laughs) and I was chased out of the medical profession. And I'm going to boast now, but I'm actually the second most cited scientist at my medical scientist at my university. Okay. Yet they threw me out as being a non-scientist, as etc., which which history will prove them wrong because I have a long career in in science. So who are the people who threw me out? What did they know that I don't know? Well, what they knew is that if they didn't throw me out, the industry would throw them out, so or, or would act on them, and that's the problem. I was speaking the other day and I said there are two types of scientists. There's an imitation scientist and the imitation scientist never questions. He or she knows everything and they're funded by industry. They're just a front, they're a propaganda front for industry. And then there's the authentic scientist, which I like to suggest that I am. And the authentic scientist is interested in only one thing, disproving himself or herself. That's all. You've got to think every time you say, okay, this is what I think. Where's the evidence that disproves it? And that's how I built my career. Because you'll see, we overturned a whole bunch of things, which just like we spoke about that 100-year story that you burn fats, you can't burn fats in high-intensity exercise. But my nature is to say, well, okay, let's go and see. Let's disprove it. And 
Why? Because I'd been promoting for 33 years that you must eat carbs. And then I discovered actually it doesn't look such a good idea. Okay, fine. Let's let's go the whole hog and let's disprove it completely. And we've we've now planning the next series of exa- of experiments, which are going to be even more definitive. And they're just going to throw the carbohydrate thing right under the bus. <laughs> and and anyone who thinks they need carbs for exercise, I think, well, if the data come the way we think they should, we're going to disprove that. So, so that's my point, that the, the authentic scientist worries every single day that what he's saying is wrong. And the imitation scientist has no such fears because they represent industry and industry supports them. So whereas when I became up and asked questions, I lost all my funding. Everything just went. Fortunately, it was the end of my career. So, And we've since found other ways of getting money from not from the industries. And so what happens, just take me, let's say I'm an endocrinologist and I'm the professor of endocrinology at my university. There's one thing I cannot say, and that is that diabetes is curable. The moment I say that, I'm out. I've lost my job because that means no more insulin. And insulin sales are critical to sustaining the pharmaceutical industry, which is under huge pressure. Don't ever underestimate the pressure it's under now for various reasons. But they so they've been struggling to find new drugs and they have to now keep working on the drugs that they sell a lot of is like insulin so what happened with me i'm i'm absolutely convinced when i said don't eat cereals and grains i the university i'm sure got a phone call from someone saying get rid of nokes we can't have him promoting this idea it's going to affect our sales uh-huh. and that's that's what happens so if you are a professor in the system you're very constrained in what you can say. And you simply can't say that diabetes is a reversible disease or obesity is a reversible disease. In fact, my whole problem starts because I I was quoted as saying the, 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 the oncoming epidemic in South Africa is type 2 diabetes. And, and that's a statement of fact that is 100% accurate. But I wasn't allowed to say it. Wow. For whatever reason. Yeah. So, so to, make, to make the point that you can only say what you're allowed to say if you're a medical professional serve in the in the profession and in an academic position. And is it because the school is funded? Because I imagine that not all professors are funded to do other research, and maybe it is, but is it because it's just like a top-down, these industry, the the schools, and then maybe the companies are funded and then it trickles down to the staff? Okay. Yeah, the pharmaceutical industry controls the media, the medical media, completely and utterly. So 70% of CNN's funding, et cetera, comes from Pfizer. So every night you will be told about Pfizer's latest product and how healthy it is for you. And I'm sure insulin will be right up there as well. So so that's the fundamental problem. And uh, if if you wanted to research something, mm-hmm. you you either go that route and you have a career or you don't. So there's there's very little option left anymore about what you can do and what you can research. I find it so cap- fast. Go ahead, go ahead. The capture is, is absolutely complete. It, the capture is complete. But it's really interesting because in the next five years, there's going to be a moment where the pharmaceutical industry may have to answer for recent crimes. And if it does, and if it gets fined, as it should be, the pharmaceutical industry could collapse. And that then means a lot of things are going to change very, very quickly. And the prediction I have from some of the experts by okay. 2030, 
we're going to be talking about a totally different pharmaceutical industry than what you have today. And it's going to, it's going to be one where the public has a say into what the pharmaceutical industry researches and what they do and, and how they publicize their work. Well, that would be amazing because most people I speak with, it's just, we always talk about grassroots movements with the people because pharma owns everything. If you are uh, talking to most people in the mainstream, it's just, we're almost conspiracy theorists believing that these media companies are captured. And, and I think most people know that, especially through the pandemic, that so much has been unveiled and it's been sort of great just for that alone. But sure. um, it, it is amazing to see. I mean, you see some of the things that are getting released uh, with just even within Pfizer's companies. I do see so many people, I mean, just even the community I work with, they're so sick, but if they had found the diet earlier, so, so many things could be different for them. And mm-hmm. one thing I find, and I was going to ask you is a lot of people at a certain point know that ketogenic diets are better or low carb diets, but then they have a hard time sticking to it. Maybe it's the stress. So they learn to turn to these junky processed foods. How do we make it stick? Because the average, you know, maybe the full-time job and then they come home and it's just I've been muscling my willpower of not eating these bad foods. And then at night, I just, I just give up. How do we bring that consistency? Yeah. So Judy, the revelation for me was the other book I wrote, which I don't think I have a copy here, The Real Meal Revolution, which, which sold millions of copies in South Africa, which was amazing because we're a small reading population. I think everyone had read two, had bought two copies because the reading (laughs) population is only 500,000. Okay. Okay. So what we did next was people started writing to me and they said, gosh, I'd followed your diet and I lost weight and I cured my diabetes or I cured my hypertension. So I collected all these letters and then we contacted them. We contacted 28 people who claimed that they had reversed their type 2 diabetes. And so we said, well, you know, let's look at the evidence. So we went to their doctors and we found the evidence that they either definitely had diabetes and they now didn't have diabetes or whatever the outcome was. And we found that of those 28 people, uh, 75% had reversed their type 2 diabetes on the diet. And the key factor that determined whether they reversed their diabetes was simply whether they got rid of their food addiction. It was, it was oh. as simple as that. So they, were, they had these cravings, and they said, no, I now control my cravings. And I think that that's the reality. And when I talk to people, I said, oh, you've got to get your carbs down, but you've got to get rid of the sugar food addiction. And I've since met some really great experts on on sugar addiction, and like Joan Ilfand, yes, who yes. taught us so lot, so much, and Bitten Johnsons, as mm-hmm. they're two brilliant, brilliant, brilliant women who've absolutely solved the problem, and they really understand it. So I tell people now, you've got to get rid of the food addiction or the sugar addiction or both. If you don't do that, you won't cure your diabetes and you won't sustain the weight loss. When we just focus on removing the carbohydrates, but when things get hard, uh, the, the first example I saw even in the social media space of the low carb space was as soon as the pandemic hit and no one knew what was going to happen with the rest of the world. I saw everyone starting to eat a bunch of carbs. And I think it's just that stress response. Mm -hmm. And when we don't replace a old habit for something new, when the stress occurs and our, our fight or flight brain starts taking over, we go back to our old habits. And I think Mm -hmm. it's so important. I think that's one of the steps of the food addiction is to figure out, well, what are you going to replace when you used to turn to food 
and you no longer can do that or use yeah. it as a solace yeah. or celebration, what can you do in replace of that? And you have to find those habits that uh, fulfill you. Otherwise, you will go back to it eventually because eventually humans will have a hard day. And and so I think that makes so much sense. And it, I never thought of it as unless you heal your food addiction, you'll never fully get over your diabetes or even obesity. And I think it makes so much sense. So I'm a, I'm a good example that um, I, I had a profound sugar addiction without okay. obviously recognizing it. And I mean, that's why we used to run so much because then we could drink our sugary drinks during the run and afterwards. And I mean, I couldn't run without my sugary drinks. That would have been impossible. So it took me 12 months to get okay. off adding sugar to the, my drinks. And that I could easily stop eating sugar containing ultra processed okay. food. That was easy because because I was raised on steak. Okay. I was born in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe which had fantastic ranches and it didn't have ultra processed foods. And my mother, by chance, came from Liverpool and her father was in the meat industry. They were meat exporters. They used to export meat to the boats that traveled between Liverpool and New York, these great ocean liners. They used to provide the meat for those ocean liners. So she had a great belief in meat and she raised me as a carnivore. And we, we ate offal. <laughs> frequently ate awful now that's very unusual right. to be raised on that but anyway so I was then of course I became clever I went to medical school and I knew that carbs are essential and fat kills you and so I changed and then for 33 years I ate that and tried to kill myself but the moment I realized there was a problem it was no problem for me to eat meat again I loved it it was because I'd been eating it as a youngster but the sugar was going to be the problem and that took time and I don't eat sweets. I haven't eaten sweets for, for 12 years, except once. <laughs> so what happened was one of these companies produced this ideal low-carb snack. And I'm not going to mention whose it was okay. because then it might poison the, the waters. But the, the, it had a particular nut, fatty nut, that was beyond delicious. I mean, it was absolutely excruciatingly attractive and i was given a box like this i said no, no i can't have that box i'll just take two little bars by that evening i'd eaten both bars and i if i would have gone through that whole thing within a few hours but and that and i hadn't eaten anything sweet for let's say 10 years but the moment it got back onto my mouth it was there again it just wanted to go it was waiting to go so i'm a walking sugar addict and, and i'm in remission and that you have to just stay in remission you yeah. absolutely can't do it. Like, I haven't eaten desserts after meals for 10, 12 years. I wouldn't touch them up because that would just spark it all back again. Yeah. And I think that's why for carnivores or many people that eat mostly meat or all meat, it's easier to just think of food or sugar as an addiction and then just to eliminate all carbs. So then there's no decision making of, okay, which carbs can I eat? Maybe I can have a small Snickers bar because it technically fits the 20 gram macros, which is such a risky thing to do. Um, but if you just say, no, all carbs are off the table, complete abstinence is key. It makes it so much easier so that in the evening when you want to snack on something, maybe pork rinds is easier or yogurt or um, some type of cheese or something instead of saying, well, maybe I can eat a healthy carb or a keto carb. And then you fall down this rabbit hole, which you never intended. So I, I think it makes sense if we were to look at sugar and food as an addiction. And then what is the key for all other types of addictions? It's abstinence. 
And I think yeah. that's where it makes so much sense. Absolutely. I, you know, and, and, and it sounds extreme, but yeah, the reality is if you're insulin resistant and you're sugar addiction, you have to be extreme or you're never going to succeed. In the very beginning of our interview, you mentioned about overhydration in the, one of the books. Can you talk a little bit about what, what was it about the mechanism of overhydration and the risk of doing marathons and ultra marathons that can be hazardous to your health? So the reason why the marathon is dangerous is because it lasts five or six hours if you're a female runner. I mean, of course, if you're male as well, but we knew that the females of those days were often running five hours and they're very good at following instructions. So if they're oh. told to drink 1.2 liters or that's 40 ounces an hour, which is horrendous. Now that 40 ounces an hour was determined in a laboratory experiment with Olympic class athletes cycling at something like 35 degrees centigrade which is very hot right with no wind to cool them and working as hard as they possibly can and they were sweating at this high rate of 40 ounces per hour and the industry wanted that study because then they could tell the average person that he or she must drink 40 ounces of fluids every hour that they run a marathon okay and so the great tragedy was Cynthia Lucero, who who died in the Boston Marathon, and and the book is dedicated to her. And I'm just trying to remember the the details of the day in Boston when she died, drinking that amount of fluid, 1.2 liters or 40 ounces, and she weighed 57 kilograms when she started the race. And I'm just trying to remember what the temperature was. The temperature was 10 degrees centigrade. In other Did... words, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, okay, 50 okay. degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. It was overcast and there was a cool wind blowing. Oh. No one's going to get heat stroke under those right. conditions. And that's why she's told to drink because she mustn't get heat stroke. So she overdrinks. And tragically for her, she had two biological problems. And the one is a condition called syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion. So these are people who, as they become dehydrated, you're meant to secrete the antidiuretic hormone, and that retains fluids. Now, the, the inappropriate syndrome is when you don't become dehydrated, but yet you secrete antidiuretic hormone. So Cynthia Lechera is running in this race, and she's drinking this huge amount of fluid and it's cold and her sweat rate is way below what she's drinking. So her sweat rate is probably a third of what she was drinking because she was running slowly and it's cold day. What happens to that extra fluid that she's now accumulating? Every hour she's accumulating probably a liter of fluid. And over five hours, that is enough to kill you because the fluid goes to the brain. It dilutes the bloodstream, dilutes the, the sodium in the blood. And eventually the, 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 the fluid transfers itself into the brain and the brain swells. And so she falls unconscious at 35 kilometers. And she's taken to a hospital where they don't know what she's got, unfortunately, because they hadn't read asked what we'd written about it. They hadn't read, and this book hadn't been published yet, but they hadn't read our publications. And they might have thought she was dehydrated, so they give her more fluid, and that that's terminal. You Because the treatment for this condition is absolutely no fluids. And in fact, we give masses of sodium and that releases mm. the sodium from the body. So her problem was she was running along. She wasn't passing urine. She was retaining the fluid because of this antidiuretic hormone. Her brain was starting to swell. She becomes confused and she's not passing urine. So she says, you see, I'm dehydrated. I need to drink more. 
and that's that's what happens for the rest of us if you accumulating an, an excess of fluid you'll pass it in the urine right it doesn't matter that you're running you'll pass urine and then you'll say gosh i'm passing so much urine i think i should stop drinking that's what the average response would be and so for the mo- most people they don't have a drink because they just it becomes irritating you've got to pass urine every 10 minutes or so but if you've got antidiuretic hormone you don't see that you don't get that and then the other thing that that she probably had we can't prove it because we weren't there at the time was that he's got some defect in the sodium not only it goes into the cells instead of staying in the bloodstream where it's meant to be it finds its way into the cells and so there's less sodium in the blood and the blood's expanding and so the problem is compounding because then the even more fluid goes into the brain that's the basic basics of what happens and so the key is if you don't have a drink you can't get it but if you do have a drink you most people won't get it because they don't have antidiuretic hormone problems and they don't have the sodium problem in the body where the sodium is moving around inappropriately so people that are then training what is your recommendation for hydration don't drink <laughs> so did you recommend zero hydration during a marathon run as an example no <laughs> obviously um <laughs> I'm being extreme so that I can come back from that position because you obviously <laughs> recognize it's ridiculous. However, up till the 1960s, people didn't drink during marathons. They drank zero. The, okay. the best runners didn't drink anything. And if you look at the top runners today, the top Kenyan runners, they don't actually drink very much. Mm-hmm. We've got this, you see, the industry said, you know, fluids are important and what you eat is important. It's neither of them important. I mean, we've been almost certainly shown that your nutrition in terms of what carbohydrates and fats probably has zero impact on your performance on race day, zero impact. But if you ask the average runner, they say, oh, I didn't get enough carbs in, that's why right. I ran poorly. Or I became dehydrated. There's no evidence for that. The What what humans don't understand, or the, the way industry functions is it's trying to say, you're a disaster. You're going to die unless you do what we tell you to do. Only we can save your life. Well, I come from Africa, and Africans have been hunting animals for millions of years in the and the desert in the heat. You know what? They could only catch the animals if they started running at extreme heat. So it had to be 35 degrees centigrade. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's very hot. And they would chase these animals for four to six hours. They would run for four to six hours with almost zero fluid replacement. Because if they stopped, the animals would escape. So they couldn't stop and eat a eat and drink some of these drinks that we talk about they had to just keep going and so you selected out a group who could do that they could run for five or six hours in the extreme heat without needing fluid or energy replacement so that's how humans evolved and we have a brain and the brain's function is to make sure you get to the finish of the race safely and don't die and it will tell you halfway through the race if you don't drink it'll say you're thirsty you better drink. And if you don't drink, I will slow you down. People can try that. The body, what the brain says is, okay, if you're going to be stupid and not listen to me and you're not going to drink, I'm going to slow you down. And that's what happens. And similarly, if you don't eat and your blood glucose falls, the first thing the brain says is, you're going to slow down. So you slow down. And then you reintroduce the glucose and off you shoot again and you perform well. So you just have to listen to your body. And when you get thirsty, then you drink. And it will tell you exactly how much you need and when you need it. And you just follow that. Yeah. From your experience, um, I know you also touch on 
maybe over exercise. Is there a point that you think that there's too much overtraining for people? Not anymore. <laughs> okay. You know, the Olympic athletes uh, at, at international level, competitive athletes, yes, um, they overtrain. But I mean, what, when I was running marathons, you know, if you couldn't finish in under three hours, no one was interested. The, the race ended at three hours and there was no one to to mark your time down and give you an award and a medal. That was it. It's all over. So people trained. We trained hard to make sure we could finish the marathons before the time, the cutoff time. Now the cutoff time is 12 hours or 14 hours, <laughs> so you can walk the whole day. And so it's, it's totally different. So people don't have to train anymore to to run these races, and that's the problem. Okay. So undertraining is now the real issue. It's only amongst the very elite that overtraining is a real issue, okay. but, but they're aware of it and they know what to do about it. Point is, if you're going to train hard, you have to give up something. You, you've got to take an extra hour a day from, okay. from whatever you were doing or two hours a day, and you've got to sleep an extra hour. Sure. So you can't do all of it. So you can't be CEO of a major company and think you can run a two-hour marathon. That's not going to work. And that's why Elliot Kipchoge, he focuses on one thing, and that's running. And then he takes a couple of months off a year to rest and to recover. And so he he continues with a particular lifestyle, which which is effective for him. Okay. And he he has a big community involvement. So he's got a reason for running so much. So he covers those bases, but he 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 won't. He knows exactly when he's overdoing things. And so he will cut back. Yeah, a lot of people overcompensate for other failings, and then they think, okay, if I run a lot and do this, okay. it'll work, but but it doesn't. Yeah. So the adrenal fatigue you're talking about is more likely coming from the other stresses, and they're trying to combine too many of these different stresses. Okay, that makes sense. You know, as we're wrapping up, um, first, I want to really thank you so much for all your work and advocacy. I don't know if people like you or Dr. Fecky didn't exist that... I would have even a platform to, I, I was really sick at a certain point and then finding low carb healed me so much and my life has changed and everything. And so I think without pioneers such as yourself, I wouldn't be here and then be getting in my own Instagram jail. And it's so nothing compared to what you went through, but you know, I, I commend you for being brave because there was much less people like you out there. So I just want to take the time and I, I'm very thankful and grateful. <laughs> Thank you. That, I really appreciate that. You know, as you get older, the, these sort of accolades really mean a lot. So thank you very much indeed. Well, I, yeah, I'm so grateful. And I know the low carb community have so much respect for you. So thank you, truly. Sure. As we're parting, do you have any, from all that you've seen with being on trial, the the food industry, you see a lot of the writing on the walls and and then just of seeing people and the experts, the whether it's dietitians, the doctors, or even the scientists, the good and the bad for the people that are listening for their own health. Do you have any parting tips or recommendations you would just want to share? Yeah, thank you very much. That's a really interesting question. And the reality is that we're in a very dangerous world at the moment because you can't go against the narrative because you just get wiped out. And yeah. that's the problem. People are so narrow-minded. They've been forced to not understand how thinking works, how you've got to work out the answers for yourself. And you don't accept the nation, the narrative. The narrative is propaganda and it's driving someone else's ma making money out of you and your ill health. And you have to, under, people have to grasp that. I think the other thing I mentioned is that, you know, we're decent people. The majority of people are decent people and they can't believe what's going on behind right. the scenes. They can't believe 
when you tell them, you know that person, you know what he or she does behind the scenes, and you know what their ultimate goal is, depopulation of the planet and stealing all your money. No, 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 no. That, I mean, the media tells me that's a lovely person. He's, he or she is such right. a wonderful person. No, that the, the media is part of the problem. <laughs> so I think you've got to work through the narrative and understand that the pe- what's happening in the world today is because there's some very, very evil people trying to run the world. And there's only 3,000 of them or so. Right. And they have, they have no care for your interest or your health. They just want to have their own, what they want to see happen. They want that to happen. And they're going to dedicate their lives to doing it. And we have to stand up against that. And the only way we'll all stand up is we've got to all stand up together and say, no, this is not right. This is not a conspiracy theory. You know, talking about conspiracy theories, with COVID-19, three years ago, everything was a COVID, everything was a conspiracy theory. They've all been proven. Every single one of them has been proven right. Every single conspiracy theory has proven right. But no one is saying, you know, oh gosh, we were wrong with these right. conspiracy theories. So my appeal to people is to analyze the information, read widely, study everything and believe nothing. And that believe absolutely nothing until you work it out for yourself. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know you you mentioned your foundation. I think you have another foundation. Is that correct? Um, and I know you uh, do, do a lot of education and just uh, wanting to educate the public on low carb. I mean, if you could talk a little bit about that and then where people can find you. Sure. So so we founded the Nokes Foundation um, something like eight years ago. Okay. And as part of that, we do a couple of things. The one is the Nutrition Network, where we teach doctors particularly, but dietitians globally, on the value of the low carbohydrate diet. And, and it's that team that's produced the encyclopedia. Okay. So that would be the nutrition network, which you can find on the internet. The Noakes Foundation was the sort of father figure which started the nutrition network. And the other one is the Eat Better South Africa campaign, okay. which brings the low carbohydrate diet to the poorest people in South Africa. And we're currently doing clinical trials. And we believe we will show that eating a not a very expensive Atkins diet, but a very basic Atkins diet, which is affordable, dramatically improves the health of the very poorest people in South Africa. And we think that applies across the world. You've got to give people more protein if you want them to be healthier. You can't just give them carbs. As you know, it doesn't work. So those are the the two main functions that that we have. And you can read about us on the, the Noakes Foundation. We also promote research and fund research and we're very keen for people to help us raise those funds so that we can help people continue to do research in this field. My feeling is that the 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 low carb diet and the carnivore diet are now pretty well established, and it's really just dotting the T's and uh, etc. That the evidence is all there. What we have to do is stop the misinformation. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that we're fighting these industries who don't want this information to get out. And, it, and, and that's, another, that's an area that we're going to start tackling soon at the Noakes Foundation. It's crazy how they have gone as far to make this anti-meat propaganda where it is better for us to eat crickets than real meat when anemia is so prevalent still everywhere in the world. And it's it's just at a certain point, you have to wonder, this sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. just people just believe what they hear. And I think at a certain point, it's also because people are so sick. 
They yeah. come from work and they're just brain foggy, overweight, and not, they don't have the capacity to even think about is the way that I'm living even affecting me adversely? And it is, but they're just unwell and they can't even yeah. process that I'm not doing something good by eating these plant based meats and stuff because it's just not even in their capacity right now. So it's really unfortunate. Yeah, exactly. And and that's part of our challenge is just to yeah. to prove that the healthiest people are eating the carnivore diet <laughs> or and or the low carb diet, but particularly the carnivore diet. Yeah. And when is the encyclopedia book coming out? It's coming out. It's going to be printed on on April the first. So oh, it's probably okay. out in May the first. Yeah, okay. May sometime. Okay, I'll definitely have to put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time again, and I um, appreciate again everything that you are doing. Thank you so kind of, and it's been a lovely interview. Thank you so much for being so enthusiastic and bubbly. It's, <laughs> it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, thank Judy. you. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. It was truly an honor to sit down with Professor Noakes as he really is one of the trailblazers of all of the low-carb movement. Without people and leaders like him, I wouldn't be in this space and have this ability to be bold and share a low-carb diet or a carnivore diet. I hope this conversation really helps you to understand why it's so important to share the benefits of a low-carb diet, a meat-based carnivore diet, and if you found benefits, why it's so important to share with your community and loved ones. By sharing how we're healing, we can help the rest of the world. You can also support Professor Noakes and the Noakes Foundation and all their research into low-carb diets by looking up the Noakes Foundation and also purchasing the encyclopedia book that shares all the information you need to know about low-carb diets. My big takeaway from our conversation is, yes, we all need to take our own health into our hands and eat a diet and lifestyle that's most conducive to us and that will make us feel our best. But beyond that, once you are healthy or you found a way to eat that is ideal for you, we need to stand up for our fellow neighbor. That is how the people can really make these movements that can fight these big conglomerations. There's a lot of bad or evil in this world, but then there are people like Professor Noakes that does good in this world that can actually change the balance of good and evil. I hope I can share content that could follow the footsteps of these great leaders. Thank you so much again, Professor Noakes. Make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.